So anyway, I, I have a word for this year, but I never intended to choose a word of the year. It's not like I went to a list of words of the year and, and chose this word. And, and when I found it, said, Eureka, I found my word of the year. Hello, little word. Be, be my word of the year. No, this word of the year came to me inadvertently and unexpectedly. But once this word came to me, it's all I can think about. And it's all I want to do. You ready to hear the word? I can stall a little bit longer. No, here's the word. The word is swaddle. Swaddle, that's my word of the year, believe it or not. And I'm sure it came to me uh, seeing these two new grandchildren born to me this year. When babies are not swaddled with their blankets, their arms and their legs, they flail about and the baby cries and cries and cries. Babies could not be less happy. Babies could not be less at peace than when they are flailing around unhindered. The baby's not free to do anything else like coo or eat or sleep until it's swaddled. But the moment the baby is swaddled, the moment that blanket is wrapped tightly around it, the baby almost instantaneously is calm and at peace. Now maybe it's just me that needs this word swaddled, but, but I need it. And maybe you need to have that feeling as well. Because it seems to me that our world is flailing a little bit. That our world is a little more uh, than a little at, at loose ends. It's chaotic, even crumbling. Change coming so quickly, too quickly. We ask if this can happen, if this has happened, what else can happen? It's definitely, to me, a flailing feeling. Well, here's the good news. God has something better for us than flailing. God has for you and for me freedom. Jesus, the one who was himself swaddled, though he was God in the flesh, said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And so worship is the place where we experience that freedom. Worship together is where we're swaddled by the means of grace. We flourish best and find the most freedom when in worship we are wrapped up by the glory and the goodness and the greatness of God that He reveals to us by His grace. And so on this Independence Day, you and I have to find our true freedom in being swaddled by the means of grace as we worship together as a body of Christ. That's what I want us to talk about as we return this morning to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. So if you'll take your Bibles and turn to that chapter or use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you or just follow along in your bulletin, the passage is printed there. But when you found Acts chapter 2, let's stand together so we might hear read together the word of the living God. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42, this is the word of the Lord. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. That's your promise to us. Father, we don't name that blessing or even pretend to anticipate what it may be that belongs to you, but we pray that it would come to us as we gather around your word, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. As you know, in these past weeks, we've been looking at this very first ever church of believers in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been seeing how they have been devoted, maximally committed to worshiping together around the means of grace. Devoted to the Word of God, to the Lord's Supper, to baptism, and to praying. Because these are the means by which God, through faith and the power of the Holy Spirit, was present with them. Through the means of grace, they could be present with God their Father and Jesus, their resurrected Savior. Through worshiping together around the means of grace, this early church had the same experience that David had. The one he wrote about in Psalm 16. He says, You, Lord, make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pleasure, joy in the presence of the Lord. They needed this experience because their world was at loose ends. Because this church was boldly worshiping the one whom the Jews had hunted and hounded and harassed until Rome had finally executed him as an insurrectionist and as an enemy of the state. This is the one, the Lord Jesus, that they're worshiping. As we've seen in verse 42, they were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. The apostles were teaching them what Jesus had taught to them. What are some of the most recent teachings Jesus had given to them? We just need to go to the upper room. On the last night of Jesus' life, and here's what he said to the disciples. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. That's what... Jesus has taught the apostles that they, in turn, teach this church. Now, when we read in verse 47 that these early believers and their fellowship experienced the favor of all the people, we know that that favor was short-lived. It was just an unexpected gift 
of God's grace for a brief moment of time. Maybe to show them and give them glimpse of the hope of the life that comes and the blessing that comes when people devotedly give their life to Christ and devotedly live their lives according to His truth. But the favor was not to continue for the early church. We're at the end of chapter 2. and chapter 3, we read about Peter and John healing this lame beggar at the gate called Beautiful at the temple. And that healed man follows them into the temple where he's walking and leaping and praising God. And so Peter uses an opportunity to point to Christ. He says, Christ is the one who has done this. And then immediately in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested for this miracle and for teaching and preaching in the name of Christ. Freedom was not the foremost prospect for these believers. By Acts chapter 8, persecution was at hand by the not yet Apostle Paul, who was breathing out murderous threats against the church. David Mathis writes in his book, Habits of Grace, about this early church. He says it's an all-in, life-or-death, collective venture in the face of great evil and overwhelming opportunity, an overwhelming opposition. But in that world, God swaddled his people in worship. He taught them how to be disciples, followers of Christ in their world, and that's what they wanted more than anything, to be devoted disciples of Christ. They knew that in worship, God acted upon them much more than they acted And they were desperate for God to act upon them because they knew their help and they knew their hope was not going to come from within. With apologies to Whitney Houston, the greatest love of all is not found inside of me or you or anyone else. We have to be acted on by God. They also needed to step out of the, the narrative of the world that they lived in. The pagan world of the Romans and this bankrupt religious world of the Jews to be wrapped up in God's bigger story, his eternal story. In worship, they needed to imagine the world the way it could be, the way it should be, the world the way God was making it to be through a church like them, the way it will be when Christ returns. And so they were devoted to worship so that God could restore them with his narrative. Now, these are the three truths about which we've looked uh, the last couple of weeks. What's true about worship together? Truth number one, worship is the place where God disciples us most and best. Truth number two, corporate worship is the place where we are acted upon by God far more than we act. Truth number three, worship is the place where we are led by the Spirit, to imagine rightly according to God's truth and according to God's story. There's so much God truth for us to imagine together. This morning, on the 4th of July, we consider our fourth truth, and that is that corporate worship around the means of grace is a place of true freedom. See this picture of swaddling a baby. It's kind of 
counterintuitive to our culture, at least the way our culture is right now. It's a different definition of what it means to be free. We believe in order to be free that the restraints have to come off. The restrictions have to be removed. That's what we think freedom is. Let us go. God knows more about freedom than we do. Tim Keller writes, Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. Freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions as finding the right ones. That's what the means of grace are. They are God's restrictions and they are right. But in reality, they don't restrict us at all. They set us free. And here's how. Week by week as we move through the liturgy, from the story of creation to the fall, to redemption and restoration in Christ, and as we look forward to the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns, we are reminded in that story that God is God and we are not God. God is God and we are not God. We are free from being God. Now, I know if I took a poll, not one person in this room would say, oh, I think that I am God. No one of us would say that, and yet sometimes we live like we are God. In that, we take on the attributes that belong exclusively to God. We take on the burden of His character and His nature. We become shackled by the weight of trying to be who God is and who He has created us not to be. I'm going to talk about just just three quick characteristics uh, of God that belong to us, that belong to God and not to us. The first is God's sovereignty. Dr. Derek Thomas preached here for us a couple of years ago. He's pastor at First Presbyterian in Columbia. And I like how he defines sovereignty. He says that it is that nothing happens without God's willing it to happen, willing it to happen before it happens, And willing it to happen in the way that it happens. Now that's God's sovereignty. Romans 11.33 Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Unsearchable means unfathomable are the ways of God. And the connotation of the word implies that we should really abandon all hope. We should abandon all hope of ever being able to fully figure out why God does the things that he does. Inscrutable means that we can't track them out. They're incomprehensible. These are the ways of the sovereign God. Job puts it this way in chapter 9. He says that God does great things beyond searching out. Marvelous things beyond number. Who will say to him, what are you doing? Worship. Around the means of grace reminds us that we are not sovereign. And neither do we have to be. God swaddles us with his sovereignty. Now listen, too often we take that on ourselves. We take on the management of our own lives as if they are our lives. And not created by God and and just loaned to us by God for His glory and His purpose. We say, I've got this. I'm seeing to everything. 
Too often, we feel angst as we try to manage our lives and make all the pieces fit together. Ah! We can't do it. It's too difficult to keep our lives together, much less our world together, that's at loose ends. God's sovereignty doesn't mean that we passively do nothing in the world. It just means that God frees us from trying to control what we can't control, from trying to change what we can't change, possibly what we shouldn't even change because of God's sovereignty. We're free to trust in the goodness of a sovereign God. Here in worship, God is sovereign. We are free not to be God. Second truth, aspect of God's character. The worship sets us free. It's when we think about God's providence. So God's sovereignty and providence are not the same. I want to quote John Piper. He defines sovereignty as God's right and power to do all that he decides to do. He defines providence as God's seeing to everything. Absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purpose. And so God's sovereignty is his will and God's providence is the way he brings about that will. Providence, it's God's fatherly care for all of us. He takes care of us. He loves us. God's providence is his fatherly provision for us. This was in the February edition of Table Talk magazine. The appeal of providence is that it places each moment of our lives, good, bad, and everything in between, in bold relief against God's plan for all things. We tell ourselves that God is in control, yet we struggle to connect the chaos of our lives with the certainty of God's design. As finite and fallen creatures, we often fail to trust that God will lead, guide, and direct us according to His good and sovereign will. One reason Christians have long spoken about providence is to bolster our faith amid life's uncertainties. The providence of God swaddles us, sets us free. We're not helpless or random victims. By God's providence, God is working out the details of His sovereign will. We need not fear. Again, think about what lies ahead. For these early Acts chapter 2 worshipers of Christ, we know that God, in His sovereignty, He has them. No matter what happens, we know that God is seeing to everything they need to do what God has called them to do in their part of God's story. Too often you and I take on the responsibility of providing for ourselves in and of ourselves. We take on the responsibility of seeing to everything. What a burden. We couldn't be more not free than when we do that. Worshiping together reminds us of God's providence. And it sets us free from not being our own providers, 
from not having to provide for ourselves what we need most. That provision comes to us from the good and gracious and loving hand of God the Father. And in worship, look, we're together, and it's one story of providence after another. Person after person after person. God's taking care of you because he's your Father, and because he loves you. So we come together in this place, and we're swaddled by the good providence of our good God. Third, and final aspect of God's character, of which worship reminds us, is his infiniteness. Worship around the means of grace sets us free to be finite. Now I want to skip ahead to Acts chapter 13. We read there that there were in the church at Antioch Prophets and teachers, Barnabas was there, Simeon, Lucius, Menaean, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Don't miss this. While they were worshiping together and fasting, The Lord, through His Spirit, works among them. He acts on people who don't have a plan. He acts on people who are dependent. He acts on people who are limited in their strength and in their knowledge and in their ability. Perhaps that's why this group was not only worshiping together, but they were also fasting. Because Fasting conveys this feeling of of emptiness. These knew, as they worshipped, that Jesus had commissioned them to go into all the world and make disciples. But guess what? They hadn't gone yet. Perhaps because they didn't have a plan. Perhaps because they didn't know how. Perhaps because they were finite. But the infinite God, He did have a plan, and He revealed it to them while they worshiped. And it seems to me as I read that they were not expecting it. They weren't seeking it. But in worship, they were free to let go. They're free to let go of agendas, to let go and let God act. You and I, we are free in worship not to know. We are. We're free in worship to be empty. We're free in worship to be open and unafraid. I'm going to co-opt the words used in Genesis to describe Adam and Eve physically, to describe us spiritually. We're told there in Genesis that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. When we come to worship, we need not be ashamed of our nakedness, of our finiteness. And worship you and I don't need to cover it up. We are free in worship not to have a plan. We're free in worship not to know it all. We're free in worship to just show up and let God act in us. We're free not to protect ourselves or defend our agendas. Worship is a place where we're free and unashamed 
and unafraid to let God do his work. Worship gives us freedom to be finite. Worship gives us freedom to be in awe of the infinite God that we cannot completely understand. Worship gives us the freedom to not have everything figured out. Look, if you and I had God completely figured out, He's not God. He's certainly not a God that I want to worship. If there's no mystery, no paradox, no infinitude about God, guess what? God can be three and one at the same time. God can be sovereign and man can be responsible at the same time. A virgin can conceive and give birth to a son. That son can be 100% divine and 100% human. That son can know no sin, zero sin in and of himself, and yet he can become sin for us. Listen, our faith is full of paradoxes, full of things we can't understand or fully explain because we are finite. Our finiteness, if we'll acknowledge it, it's reason to worship the infinite God, not reason to abandon him because we don't understand him or his ways. We can't have and often don't get the answers that we want. We are finite. And that's why faith itself is God's gift to us. He's gifted us with faith. Thank God for it. With the ability to keep on believing in the face of uncertainty or mystery or paradox or when we don't understand why. Worship sets us free to be finite. To not flail about because we don't know everything about an infinite God. God has better for us than flailing. God has for us freedom. Freedom in our finiteness. Freedom not to be in control. Freedom not to carry the burden of providing for our greatest needs. My prayer is that you will experience that freedom because it's what God has for you. It's what He gives to you. Freedom. It comes to you when, when God swaddles you and me and wraps us up tightly with the means of grace. You won't be bound. You won't be restricted by them. You'll be free. Free to be like that lame man that Peter and John healed who went walking and leaping and praising God. Imagine us doing that. Imagine us together being set free in worship by the sovereignty and the providence of our infinite God. Imagine us walking, leaping, freely, unhindered in this world because God swaddles us week by week with his means of grace so that we know Jesus, so that we see Jesus and know that our freedom comes from him. Listen, hear him say, hear Jesus say, come on, come on, you are free. And then imagine his smile and imagine his joy as we run with him. He's running with us, released, 
set free in this world. Chaotic. And at loose ends as it may be. And guess what? We don't have to imagine it. We don't have to imagine it. We just need to come together. We just need to be devoted to worship together around the means of grace and discover week by week the freedom that God gives to us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for our freedom. We ask that you would let us all that you would help us to always allow you to define what freedom is in our lives. In no way is it unrestricted to do what we want, what we think, what we feel, what we believe. Those determinations aren't up to us. Lord, they're up to you, the sovereign God. And so we pray that you will help us know what freedom is, what freedom in Christ is, that you'll help us to know how it is to be free in this world, and that's by being devoted to you and the means of grace. Do that work in us, we pray, by your power, for our good, but ultimately for your glory, for we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.